0: Hey team, Oliver here. This week I get to interview Andrew Salzberg, the former head of transportation policy at Uber and now a Loeb Fellow. I worked with Andrew at Uber and he's been thinking about the intersection between climate, transportation and technology longer than most and it was a joy to have this conversation. It is really fun and I hope you get a lot out of it. In terms of news, speaking of Uber, they have agreed to buy Postmates, the fourth largest US food delivery service for $2.65 billion in stock. The deal is part of the Uber strategy to expand its delivery footprint to compensate for the collapse of the ride-hail business due to the pandemic. Food delivery, as you know, is a very strong growth area for micromobility and I encourage you to go and check out the conversation with Mina Nada of Bolt Bikes if you want to learn more about that. Also, faves of the podcast, Van Moof, tried to release their first TV ad, which features scenes of traffic jams, vehicle accidents and tailpipe emissions. This was then banned in France because it, quote unquote, discredits the automobile sector while creating a climate of anxiety. If ever there was the example of the Barbra Streisand effect, it is this, because the news of this ban created far more news than simply allowing it to screen. Van Muff responded to the ban by questioning the French advertising regulatory authority's impartiality, and the saga has been covered around the world. Thanks for you who have taken the time to review the show. It's been much appreciated. I also want to let you know that we're currently looking for sponsors for the podcast. We've had a plethora of great brands in the past, including Twilio, Particle, Onyx, Joyride, Populous, and more, connect with our global audience. We reach a very wide crowd, tuning in for the latest in the story of micromobility. If you're interested in talking to us about sponsoring the show, please DM me on Twitter or reach out to us at micromobility.io. And with that, here's Andrew. And welcome back to Micromobility. Uh, We have with us today, Andrew Salzberg. How are you doing today, Andrew? Pretty good.
1: Can't complain. (laughs)
0: Uh, yes given what we've just uh we we just had a a small interaction before this and Andrew explained to me that he's about to become semi-nomadic with a small baby so yes um, uh, i i i love i love the uh the optimism and uh, the zest in which you engage in life uh, i'll take it um (laughs) <laughs> hey, well, look, I, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Obviously, you and I have known each other for, for, for quite a while. Um, uh, so uh, I thought maybe what would be useful for for the audience is if you just take them through your background, where uh, why why on earth uh uh we are interviewing you on yeah. this uh, on this on the podcast?
1: Sure. Um, well, I don't, why you're interviewing me is a question only you can answer, but I can happily tell you about my oh, uh, my backstory. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think. I want to start with my dad being Dutch Because I think that gives me good credibility With the micro-mobility crowd Since, you know, all all cities aspire to be Amsterdam When it comes to cycling Or maybe Copenhagen, but I'm always biased towards Amsterdam So, um, but I grew up in Montreal Which is actually a pretty good bike city in its own right Uh, And, uh, you know, grew up without a car As do many people up there Um, And so grew up thinking about Cities and how we get around a little bit. Um, And my dad teaches architecture, which led me to study engineering and got interested in cities and uh, studied urban planning ultimately. At Harvard, where I really focused on public transportation, Uh, wormed my way into MIT to work at Transport for London for a little while, which I think, depending who you ask, is one of the best, if not the best public transport operator in the world. Um, And then I worked at the World Bank for a while, was lucky enough to work in China uh, between 2009 and 2013 which you know, is right after sort of a major stimulus package that had cities there building you know more subway infrastructure and more high-speed rail infrastructure than pretty much anyone has ever done uh, in history before that. So that was great. And then in 2013, I think I took a, a turn, which maybe made a little bit less sense to some people when they saw what happened at the time, was I went to work at Uber. But in 2013, that was a pretty small place. There was about 300 employees. Uh, it was probably in 60, 70 cities, but only a handful of countries at the time. Um, And I was just excited about what the future of transportation through a smartphone might look like. Uh, And I managed to get myself a job working in New York on the operations side of the company, which was great. Uh, But then after a couple of years, you know, increasingly the problems that Uber was facing were regulatory for lots of reasons that people who listen to your podcast probably know. And as someone who had worked before in what I would call sustainable urban transportation, they didn't really have anybody working there. Who had the mandate to think about those things internally so i got to create a new team that really did nothing but thinking about you know what does uber have to say or do about congestion about relationships with public transportation uh, about the environment about all the things you would care about if you care about uh micro mobility as one example and so that led us to create new teams around public transit which i'm happy to say is really growing and doing really well Uh, and i'm long since not involved but it's taken on a life of its own Um, i was happy to introduce the, the jump team to Uber, which I'm sure we can talk about at some point, which, which felt like a really good move as that grew. It felt a little bit different as we've watched what's happened to it over the last few weeks, um, created some data sharing teams and some work on sustainability. But all that ended when I left last July. And the main reason I left was a theme that runs through every job that I just described, which was that you know one of my big motivations for working in the space has been climate change. I found an old essay that I wrote in 2005 about climate change and urban development. So it's been in my mind for a while, but really across any of those public or international or even tech roles, it was rare to find anybody talking about the scale of change that's necessary in transportation and the speed that's necessary if we're gonna meet the challenges and the goals that are put forward and things like the Paris Agreement. So I kind of felt that, uh, but wanted an opportunity to do nothing but that. And so I've been at Harvard for the last year on a very nice fellowship, which I highly recommend to anybody who's interested to check it out. It's called the Loeb Fellowship. And I've had a year here to basically have no boss other than myself, which is the first time that's happened in a long time. And I've just been asking myself questions about how the heck we decarbonize transportation, you know, a lot more quickly than we have. And in practice in a place like the US, uh, we actually haven't been decarbonizing emissions from transportation have been going up. They're now the largest source in the country. And even on a per capita basis, uh, in a lot of places they've been going up. So, you know, it's a huge piece of the problem. And and it's, I think only been recently, even more exposed as the primary culprit because electric power generation, which used to be the biggest source of emissions, has been doing a little bit better, you know, from the growth of renewables and uh, depending on your perspective, a little bit of the move to natural gas has helped a bit in the U.S., at least for now. And so those have come down a bit, which has really uh, given transportation exposure as the number one source. So over the last year, I've been focusing really on that challenge, which has run through everything else, um, including obviously the work uh, in micro mobility and mobility tech but even beyond that uh, but trying to focus explicitly on that problem
0: yeah oh great introduction <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you show <sell> yourself well <laughs> <laughs> um well yeah so so um long-time listeners of the podcast will probably understand that um yeah where where Andrew and I obviously overlap was at Uber but um the part that Probably isn't very clear is that the reason I ended up being at Uber was in part because I was following your uh, your Twitter feed. And, <laughs> I never got a referral. And, and, and I was for so- my,
1: my Twitter my tweets.
0: That shouldn't no be no well. no. <laughs> yeah yeah, but um, you, you were talking about such interesting ideas uh, and the role that a company like Uber could play in disrupting the kind of the ownership model and uh, of of cars, and then thinking about how do we build business models around this idea that you service. The sort of what is the job to be done of moving someone around yeah. and then and then what is this what is the role of the smartphone being able to do that and why you thought that uber was an interesting kind of um, opportunity for that yeah um, which got me really excited and then obviously we got to work on uh, a bit of stuff together when, when we were at Uber um, uh, which was really fun um, but yeah look I, I obviously I, I, you're, you're kind of looking at it in the very broad sense of decarbonizing transport and yeah. so um, the only other the only other person that we've talked to um, about, re- t- you know, directly about this idea of micromobility and its role in decarbonizing transport has been Dr. Chris Cherry, um, mm-hmm. which was episode number, I don't know, I think, 10 or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if folks are interested in going back and checking that out, it's a very interesting episode about Dr. Cherry's work in China and tracking the rise of electric two wheelers in China through sort of like 2006 onwards. Um, but look, I, I, I want to kind of understand one, how you're thinking about the whole decarbonizing of transport and how radical that that is because i know that that's something that's you know we talk about it but what we're talking about isn't going to get there and so yeah. you know how, how's that conversation going and then the the second i really want to dig into is how you think micro mobility can contribute to that so yeah. if we pack, maybe pack unpack that first bit first yeah um talk talk through kind of um what those conversations are like as someone who's kind of you know you're involved in technology but you also understand transport, you understand the challenges around infrastructure change, Um, kind of the wider uh, political landscape that drive these changes. Um, What are you seeing and and, and why have you chosen to focus on this?
1: Yeah, and what's it gonna take maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, why why am I focusing on it, I think is, you know, the basic reason is that I am concerned about climate change and I think many people are and I know something about transportation. And so it seems like, you know, all the advice if you follow people who work in climate and you ask them what people should do to get involved, they will tell you that you should map your network and what you know about uh, and, and where you have value and apply that to the climate problem. And so for me, that's probably easier in the sense that than, than some folks because where I'm living right now in the US, transportation is the largest source of emissions, as I was saying. So it's sort of clear to me that if I wanna be useful in this problem, that's where to go. Now, as you point out, that's still a very broad question, right? Transportation, we talk a lot about urban transportation, urban passenger transportation, that's kind of where I spent my career um, internationally mm-hmm. as well. But the problem obviously goes well beyond that. And in some ways that that shorter distance travel is kind of the easiest part of the problem. doesn't mean it's objectively easy, but it's easier. We have technologies and obviously micro mobility is a good example of you know batteries and uh, electric drive can do a lot of good work for shorter trips. Um, and so we're seeing that in a bunch of different ways. Um, obviously the adoption overall, in a place like the U.S., but even globally, of electric vehicles, and I say vehicles in the broadest sense, meaning uh, everything from a scooter to a you know uh, electric Hummer, uh, is still relatively small yeah, as a share. Cybertruck, yeah, truck, yeah, a, a cyber truck, yeah <laughs> as a share of the overall <laughs> okay. travel picture, is still pretty small. Um, but you yeah. know, there's lots of people who've been doing lots and lots of research that goes uh, back many years to the fact that you know, if you're the average urban passenger traveler trip isn't that long, and it's sort of relatively easy to imagine how it might work if it was powered by a battery, um, and that's getting easier and easier as batteries, et cetera, get cheaper. But there's a whole other piece of it, you know, long-distance freight, uh, trucking, et cetera, where it's not so obvious how in the short term you would get that to be zero emission uh, in some capacity and and what's that going to look like. And there are places, California just a couple weeks ago put out a pretty ambitious rule around zero emission trucks, Um, and I think in some sense that regulation asks for technologies that don't currently exist, which is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, and obviously aviation, You know, maritime, you know, transportation can mean many things. I think a lot of the conversation in the mobility tech world is more on kind of urban passenger trips, because that's what we experience as consumers. Um, But, you know, the the problem is much bigger than that um, more broadly. So, you know, in terms of how it's going to happen or what I'm thinking about, I mean, to me, the piece that I take some optimism from is that more broadly in the climate movement, you know, forgetting about transportation, the level of demand and ambition is much greater now than it was two years ago. We'll see what happens as we come out of, or, you know, as we're in, for now, the pandemic. But before that, I think if you saw from 2017, say, up till pretty recently, I think the, there was a growing sense of moving the goalposts in terms of what people were asking for, right? So, you know, we went from talking about uh, at the end of the Obama administration, they had a plan to cut emissions by 80% by 2050. And in the Democratic primary here, Joe Biden was talking about net zero by 2050, and that was thought of as, you know, being not nearly ambitious enough. So I think you've seen pretty quickly Mm -hmm. that people are asking for, you know, net zero by 2040 or 2030, and you know, there's some, a little bit of murkiness in some of what these terms mean, but there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of people are saying, we have to cut emissions, you know, 50% by 2030 is one of the things that's been talking about, uh, coming out of some IPCC reports quickly, and if you think about that in transportation, that is a pretty radical change in a short amount of time uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. So I think what I've been trying to do is connect those high-level climate statements, uh, and obviously cities are signing on as declaring climate emergencies or saying that they're still into the Paris Agreement or making various commitments, but I haven't seen that much. There's a relatively low number of places that have put on paper what it would take in transportation to actually deliver on those goals. So that I think is one thing that has been, there's not zero cities that have done that, but there's not a lot. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that it, it it's pretty hard to do. And so if you have to put on paper what it's going to take to get to, you know, zero emission transportation or even, you know, a 50% cut in emissions or an 80% cut in emissions, whatever your chosen ambitious target is, very quickly you see how much change that's going to take. Um, and there's lots of different versions of what that change might look like. But no matter what your pathway, it's it's a lot more quickly than the system has changed any time recently.
0: So that that's... Yeah. And there's yeah. also a challenge as well, I imagine, because a city can't... You know, a city can't mandate, for example, they only have electric trucks in them. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, yeah. The, 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 that, that's a sort of a national or a federal level. Um,
1: in some cases. Uh, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's yeah. a really interesting point. I mean, one of the things is the cities that may be politically motivated to do more radical action uh, just by virtue of kind of the politics of those places don't have, as you're pointing out, don't always have the levers to do everything right. They can control some aspects of street space, but they can't control vehicle emissions in the US or in some countries, but in Europe, you know, there are a lot of places that cities do have that authority. So like you know, one of the things that I saw at Uber and you might have seen too when you were there, is you know, Uber's committed to fully electric fleet in London by 2025. And they're not doing that out of the goodness of their own heart. They're doing that because, you know, London has various versions of a low emission zone that they have imposed on all vehicles. And so everybody from Uber to delivery drivers to taxi operators are all going electric or zero emission in some form because London as a city has the authority to do that. And a lot of European cities have, you know, urban scale emission controls, um, mostly with the goal of controlling air pollution and climate kind of as a secondary benefit. So that that I think Mm -hmm. is something that's super interesting because there you actually do have the power you're talking about. At the local level, um, and obviously, I think automakers and other people would rather have, you know, national or international standards, so they're not trying to comply with 50 regulations or 500. Exactly, but, yeah, no, but I think yeah. in terms of moving more quickly, it's clear to me that some big cities, and uh, London being a good example, are going to be more willing to be more ambitious if they have the tools to do that, and that's happening right there. But you know, less so uh, on this side of the
0: Atlantic, North America. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay, cool. Sorry, I interrupted.
1: Yeah, no, I think so. You know, you know, a lot of the work that I've been doing is just trying to trying to connect those two things and not to say, here's the way that city X should get to zero, but to say, okay, if you if you give this goal, and I've been using Boston, just because I'm sitting in Boston, um, but we built a very, very crude and overly simple spreadsheet of all the trips that happen in Boston. And we've done this through a class and some workshops and it's been reused in a couple other places, including an online class recently, and just said, okay, here, here you go. You have access to all the trips, and you have a magic wand in this scenario, and you can move people to different modes, you can electrify travel, uh, you know, you can reduce demand, you can have people work from home, all the things you might think about doing, the full range of options, and kind of asking mm-hmm. people to build their own version of how they're gonna get to an 80% cut. And obviously that's you know not ultimately how transportation policy is done, or how behavior is changed, but as an exercise to get people realizing How much change it takes and what i think also very critically is that even your chosen solution whatever it is is probably not going to be enough on its own right i think a lot of people come into this problem and i put myself in this category kind of come into the problem saying well i'm really i care about public transportation and i know climate change is important and therefore public transportation is the answer to climate change and there's no doubt that it is part of the answer um But it may not be the whole answer. And you could say the same thing about cycling or, you know, denser urban development or, frankly, electrification. Oh,
0: we like to think of micromobility. I was going to say.
1: So not not,
0: not to pick on your
1: your chosen version. uh, But, you know, one of the things that I think... That uh, often gets said. I feel head. so sane. Yeah, perfect, perfect. <laughs> but one of the things, you know, I just, one of the things that I didn't really fully internalize until making a really basic spreadsheet is that, you know, there's a lot of stats about what percentage of trips are short, which is true, you know, whatever, 50% or 40% of travel is less than three miles, those trips, um, but which is true. But from an energy perspective, obviously, if you take a one mile trip in a car, that's only 130th as bad as a 30 mile trip in a car. And the sad reality is that in a US metropolitan area, There are a heck of a lot of long, long trips that happen, long commutes and you know other other trip purposes. And so if you do manage to take all the trips under three miles and put them onto something zero emission, you know, the numbers can vary, but that's like five or ten percent the problem, maybe, because obviously the longer trips just do more, you know, do more energy damage, more consumption. Um, and so like even that simple fact, you know, we often talk about in urban transportation we talk about mode split and we talk about it by percentage of trips, right? Like 20% of trips are on transit. But from an energy perspective, yeah. what really matters is percentage of passenger miles because you know, if you convert every short trip to transit or walking or cycling, that's great, but obviously what really is killing you in this sense is the longer travel. And so how do you have strategies that help address that as well? And that's, sort of, that's just one example, I think, of what messing around in a spreadsheet, even though it's clearly oversimplified, is helpful to me as a kind of conversation analytical workshop learning tool that might help break down some of what i see in the sustainable transport world which is that people kind of have their chosen mode or their chosen solution and are skeptical or maybe even hostile of other answers to kind of climate and transportation
0: totally totally <laughs> oh look this is great um only because yeah in part because i think uh, we focus on that kind of that low-end Uh, stuff in part because obviously that's where the behavior is but also as well i think it's about this idea of it taking hold so you know that there might be you you know if you kind of follow classic disruptive innovation theory you take hold at the lower end and then you go further and further and further up market so actually what you're going to get is the development of these vehicles they're very good for one mile trips in the form of scooters but then you'll end up with some vehicle like a lit Motors c1 or a self-balancing motorbike or something like this it's a one-seater it's more suited to the size of the the person who's actually taking the trip, right. and that'll be electric and it'll end up conformable to the, the highway or whatever. Yeah, um, And that it'll go further and further up market to yep. the point that it ends up consuming everything, but you have higher throughput on the roads and it's and all zero emission and it should be, in theory, one hopes, so lower sh- cost uh, to be able to serve. So, it. should
1: I be imagining like a enclosed? Single person pod car at the end of that uh, progression.
0: Yeah, precisely. You like, a, have you seen the Arkimoto or the? Um, I don't think so. Uh, or the Motor c one. No. Okay, yeah. So, so the Archimodo is a because I mean, micromobility, right? It's our thesis is is that it's sub five hundred kg yeah. It's everything that isn't a car. Yep. And that it'll start low end. It'll start really like, uh, you know, um, the 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 vehicle itself will be low performance, but it will satisfy in one very important variable. Which is, are probably actually more around congestion yeah. than anything, yeah. um, just because of the basic geometry of a vehicle moving through a dense urban area, Yep. Um, and that that'll move quicker. So an e-bike or an e-scooter will be quicker through everything because everybody's sucking their cars. But over time, that that technology will end up into these sort of pods and things like a an encapsulated pod with either two or three wheels that can move through and is the same width as maybe a. Um, have you seen yeah. the, the, like the Toyota iRoad, yes. for example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So something something similar to that. Yeah, you know, uh, um, uh, and because it's benefiting from it's benefited from all of the low end technology yeah. uh, that's developed through as they've got better and better. That vehicle itself would maybe be in the region of sort of I don't know five to twelve 000, fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. Rather than and so in that way then it's able to compete asymmetrically with a car.
1: Yeah. Yeah, my wor- I mean, I, are sort of stuck. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I always try and you know, my my worry, and obviously, this is a perhaps overly U.S. focus, but I don't know what the New Zealand uh, fleet composition is, but you know, people here are buying larger and more expensive vehicles, which runs counter to a lot of what you would expect people to do, and that may well, you know, maybe you have reasons that's going to change, but I think you know, one one thing is, you know, if you're if you're in the small car. Uh, and you end up running into a, I don't know how much a Ford F-150 ways, but I'm sure it's a heck of a lot. Uh, you know, there's there's a mix between speed on the road, the size of other vehicles, seemingly people's preference for larger and more expensive cars has been expressed here for the last few years that, you know, I, I wonder how we flip those things around. I mean, obviously I think smaller vehicles, lighter vehicles, electric are all good, uh, but what's the transition look like? Uh, especially as you start, start talking about what you're talking about. I can imagine we're seeing, you know, one of the things that's exciting about, you know, in the midst of all the sadness that's happening in the pandemic, you know, the one exciting thing is that people are dedicating more street space to cycling, to slower speeds, all of which I think opens up more safe space for more people to use, you know, whether it's what, you know, bikes and scooters look like today or some future iteration, all of which is great. And I can imagine that happening more and more at the urban scale. Those longer distance trips, I think, as you start to think about higher speeds and things that look like interstates um you know safety considerations and people's preferences i think get get tougher yeah to absolutely
0: and i think that, that, in, that in, in that regard as well so so those vehicles obviously will end up developing yeah. um, in a way that's conformable to that so they'll meet the safety regulations if they're going to go on the interstate for example yeah, right. but i think it's this idea that um so the other thing as well that gets unlocked and obviously this is an area that you know a huge amount about but is this uh, this shift to um Uh, And why we find it so interesting, micromobility, is that, uh, and Horace is so bullish on shared and the kind of idea of fleet services, is that these vehicles end up going into that the, the way that you consume it will be as a shared service mm-hmm. so this you know and and we can go into autonomous and yeah. where you think that's going to go yeah. and obviously the, the i joined uber in 2015 thinking we are going to be in autonomous next year we're going to be rolling <laughs> this out like tk's yeah. going to be like yeah. blowing through regulations like he did with rideshare and yeah. we'll have um we'll have fleets of uh, autonomous cars on the road by yes. 2017 obviously that never happened Yeah. um but yeah, that but that, that, that but that idea, right? That you can get so that we change the way that people consume it. So, for example, yes, we're going to have interstate trips, mm-hmm. and they will they will happen. But the vehicle that you'd use that on would you would cons- you would consume that ride sure. as on a shared platform of some regard, yeah. rather than necessarily you know purchasing the vehicle of, yeah. your, of yourself. And I'm I'm kind of curious. You've obviously studied this in depth. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know when you were at Uber and 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 like. The the uh, I'm the first to admit that the the metrics uh, that I think matter around vehicle ownership are probably going the wrong way yeah. for that thesis. Yeah.
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I, yeah, I don't. I mean, you know, I think the I'm not convinced of the inevitability of sharing. I mean, I think um, you know, it's, if you think about it, here it's particularly hard in places where parking is free and widely available. You know, people have an obvious preference or have expressed one certainly in the past for. Owning their own vehicle—that's that, certainly changing. But I think what you're seeing it change more in places that already have access to other options, um, which has been part of the, you know, the political challenges that you're seeing adoption of shared services where you know, pre-existing shared services were successful, like transit, etc. So, you know, I, I think there's tons of benefit of more people doing exactly what you're describing, right? Relying on a fleet uh, and having that fleet be right-sized to so the trip—all those things are like enormously beneficial and open up a lot of other benefits. I think what I've come around to, which is maybe obvious for some people, is that. I don't think there's necessarily an inevitable market push for that to happen. I think we kind of have to think about how are we incentivizing those things to happen uh, from a bunch of different directions from the public policy perspective to the extent we want them to happen. Um, You know, I think there's a lot of conversation, I mean, obviously right now, literally sharing a ride with somebody else is not happening almost anywhere on any of these services. But there's a way in which, you know, things like a, a London congestion charge or the potential for a New York congestion charge that charged per vehicle would incentivize people to share a vehicle because you could split that toll in half. I mean, that's a pretty obvious example, but I think it just shows to me that there's probably a lot of places where the good things we would talk about from a network, a fleet, a network of you know connected vehicles or whatever the right uh, shared vehicles terminology is, are things that those services themselves can't control. So they can't control the fact that roads are told or untold, how they're told. Uh, they're dependent on other people to do that effectively for them you know I think they benefit from a lack a scarcity of parking and I think obviously removing parking is a huge benefit for a whole bunch of other reasons but the platforms can't do that that's a government function so you have to think about are there places you can start to make parking less available and incentivize alternatives not just taking a ride but you know getting there in a smaller vehicle, biking yourself, walking, et cetera, opening up more density for development. I mean, all those things, I think they're related, but I think to me, you know, I'm no longer in San Francisco uh, and no longer in Silicon Valley, where there's a lot of language of like inevitability of some things. I'm not convinced about inevitability. I am convinced that there are reasons that you might want these things to happen from a public policy perspective, but that a lot of the power to really steer that transition you know, doesn't run a lot, doesn't reside in the hands of the companies themselves, I think for good, for very good reason. And and how can you collaborate to start to lay in incentives to shift that over? And I think, you know, slow streets are an example. Removing parking requirements are an example. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of places. Tolling that's intelligently implemented is an example. Low emission zones, I mean, all these things are helpful to get the right outcomes in the transportation system. It's not so obvious to me that just people's preferences uh, and you know, battery technology progression on its own will do enough. Will will we'll do that much. And certainly, I don't think we'll do enough on the climate front without pretty aggressive and smart policy is My current take.
0: So let's let's dig into that because I the the um, I think uh, having watched this space for a really long time. I mean, for, for um, context, I studied kind of climate change, climate change politics when yep. I was at university. In 2000 and 2006 through um and just have been deeply frustrated by how slow our democratic processes are to be able to make things move um i'm you know there's obviously an interplay with tech because people don't want to you know the, the example that you gave of Ca- uh, california saying we're going to set these uh, set these emissions targets with technology effectively right. at the moment doesn't exist um you know, there's a little bit of an aspect of the technology comes and then we adapt to it, mm-hmm. rather than we can we can necessarily stare towards it and say that's a thing because yeah. b- b- the Oberden window shifts as as the technology develops. Um, how do you see that into play happening in the democratic um, setups that we're going to? Do you think we're going to get there? Do you <laughs> think the technology and the uh, will will we'll move quickly enough that we can open up those those conversations about the ch- sort of change that we need, or is are we? inherently up against a very slow-moving beast.
1: You mean get there in terms of like reconciling yeah, transport change the, with the climate policy, targets? The,
0: yeah. yeah, well, yeah. It, more, more that, that, when you say you can't do it just on technology alone, you need the government to come along yeah. with you, I'm saying that the government is slow, yeah. and they will only, in, in theory, unless you've got very aggressive regulators, um, and, and, and bureaucrats who are sort of uh, willing to go and skate out a little bit further than where the technology appears to be today, Um, you know, if we wait for all the technology to kind of develop itself, it won't happen. Yeah. So, So, I mean,
1: I I am seeing, I mean, going back to it earlier, I mean, I think the, whether it's the conversation around the Green New Deal or things like Sunrise, these are US examples, but like Sunrise Movement um, or Extinction Rebellion kind of globally, you know, there there are a lot of grassroots campaigns that are demanding much more radical action. It doesn't mean that governments are going to adopt those tomorrow, but if you look, for instance, at the conversation in the Democratic primary, which, you know, again, is not, Uh, elected and uh, delivering policy its conversations within a party itself. But, you know, the the Democratic House just came out with recommendations uh, this week in their climate action plan, which includes, I think it's a ban on new internal combustion engine sales in 2035, which, you know, there are many people in the climate movement who will tell you that's too slow. But if you think about it in terms of what we've been talking about until very recently, that is a really radical departure. Uh, and even a lot of European countries haven't got targets that are that aggressive. And even California doesn't have that. Uh, and again, it's far from becoming law. And we're having lots of battles about who has the authority to do that and whether that would happen. But that, you know, that's a candidate who is currently well ahead in the polls, having his party and the House majority advocating for you know, essentially getting rid of internal combustion engines and new vehicles relatively quickly. I mean, I think we should go quicker than that. But So I will say that while you're right, I mean, I've worked in transportation for my career, so call it 15 years. And certainly a lot of things we've been talking about it's it's frustrating to see change taking a long time and i think in some places the reality is like change is slow if you think about you know vehicles change over slowly ish in the sense that they're on the road for 10 or 15 years Um, although some of the smaller ones like you guys talk about you know smaller vehicles can evolve faster so that can turn over a little quicker but you know cars tend to last that long so even if you ban a certain kind of new car today To get from that to 100% adoption in the fleet can take decades. But, you know, urban development is way slower than that. So, you know, I think a lot about, because I come out of an urban planning tradition, and a lot of people talk about, well, we should allow denser development to reduce the need to travel rather than thinking about how to, you know, change the technology of travel, which I'm very sympathetic to for obvious reasons. Um, But I think in those areas, change takes even longer, right? Even if you were to allow a denser form of development, in a place like Boston, where I'm sitting now, and you remove the restrictions to that kind of development, you know, the number of new housing units that are built as a share of what's already built, isn't that big. You know, it's not a city that's growing like a, you know, a second tier Chinese city or something that's growing at really rapid rates. So land use change happens really slowly. And on the timeframes we're talking about, you know, by 2050, say, you know, Boston in 2050 is probably gonna look a lot like Boston in 2020, in the same sense that Boston in 1990 look a lot like Boston in 2020. And and that is all assuming that you can overcome some very, very strong opposition in the neighborhoods like the one I'm sitting in in Cambridge to new development being allowed. Right. There's a lot of opposition to that. So you have to defeat really concerted opposition from people. And even when you do that, uh, the change is going to come a little slowly. So, you know, I think there's different places you're asking generally about can the government move quickly. I think in some places the political pressure is mounting to do that. And I think obviously the U.S. is uh, an outlier in terms of their action on climate in the wrong direction but even here i think the conversation is getting more ambitious more quickly it doesn't mean it's going to happen and it doesn't mean that's fast enough and all the caveats you said but you know one place that i'm finding some optimism is that i think the political pressure at least before coronavirus we're going to see how the priorities come out uh, given what's happening but that was really i think mounting to something way more radical than it was a little while ago so while i share your frustration i think the moment has been changing which gives me some optimism that we got to bring some of that energy into transportation and kind of help people understand the landscape here who are coming from the broader climate movement help the transportation people understand what's happening more broadly in climate movement and kind of build some shared energy to get more radical change in policy which hopefully can open up continued advancement in the kind of tech that we're talking about too
0: Gee, you whereas if you're nothing but a pragmatist there salzburg yeah um well look i I, look i don't (laughs) i remember having a, a conversation with horace a couple uh, i was in on an earlier podcast and i was saying look i am generally frustrated with the the speed at which things ha- are happening in this space especially around mobility." because yeah. you know it's, uh, the, the, yes there's a risk obviously, obviously that i see it as a sort of silver bullet to a lot of problems around climate yeah um, and as you point out it's like well it's you know not actually that much in terms of the energy stuff but it does really help in the urban transport and it opens up a lot of conversations and has yeah look real realistically you know scooters have been around for about two years maybe yeah. two and a half <laughs> yeah and that and that and and how much that's changed the conversation in urban planning how much that's changed the conversation in transport planning how much the, you know um even if i reflect on it uh, in, in in the some of the advocacy work that i've done you know there's been it's it really is it's very it's a very different conversation now around building new infrastructure to accommodate this influx of new vehicles versus hey if we build these things maybe people will buy it. right Right. you know that 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 in and of itself is actually you know, that's there have been people advocate advocating for for sort of um active modes of travel or whatever you want to call it for 30 years and yeah. they've never quite you know mm-hmm. <laughs> the, it's just this is the speed at which we have to move um it's just frustrating i think watching uh, that conversation as someone who also was looking at the science and saying wait a second the, the speed at which we're moving is just nowhere near yeah. fast enough that's right so I'm, I'm curious from your perspective look i, I mean You obviously, uh, you're deep in it. You've been doing this for a year. Are you you more optimistic, less less optimistic than you were when you began? (laughs) I would
1: say I'm actually more optimistic, but that's maybe because I started out pretty pessimistic. Uh, I always think, you know, like anything, you know, one of my, the reasons I was concerned, aside from just the science that we all have seen, is that I was sort of frustrated that I wasn't able to focus fully on it. And I think like anything else, when you really start to get into it, Um, You can find reasons for optimism. So one thing is just that I'm learning more about it uh, and and taking some optimism just from that. But I would say you know the two things, the two places I have found some optimism are one on the politics we've talked a lot about, right? New movements, more ambition, etc. And two on some of the technology issues, and not so much in transportation, but in renewable energy, where you know the cost of wind and solar have come down, you know, dramatic amounts even in the last decade, which I think has opened up the conversation about getting to yeah, you know, there was just a report recently on getting to a ninety percent, you know, zero emission grid in fifteen years in the U.S., which would take a whole bunch of things to go right and it's very challenging. But you know, the the technology makes that imaginable, uh, and that is really changing what's happening in the decarbonization of the electricity sector. And so I think that provides some hope in some sense for transportation, which is sort of the next domino in your idealized version of how this whole thing would go, as a country transitions to. You know really deep decarbonization electric power goes first and transportation is typically like the next thing to go building is also really important um, and so you know it's sort of transportation's turn and I think that means that's a bit of an impetus for action I think more people are going to be more focused on it coming from climate um, and I think the technology obviously it's not just that electric power is getting better uh, but batteries are getting cheaper so the whole idea of electrification which is not the whole answer but that piece of it I think is getting a little more exciting and a little more possible. People who listen to me and talking about this right now are going to say EVs are not the whole answer. And I agree. I think we should do all the kind of things we're talking about to reduce demand and shift to smaller vehicles. Those are important too. Um, but I think electrification is going to be a big part of it. And that that piece is looking more plausible, certainly for like urban passenger transportation. So again, I, it doesn't mean I think that we're, we have a really a real shot of cutting things fast enough to keep temperature rise to 1.5 and even two degrees is going to be challenging. But the reality that I've come to is it's not like if you miss two degrees that it stops getting worse, right? It just gets worse forever. So I have chosen to be focused on making it less bad than it would otherwise be. And in that sense, there's never a moment when it's no longer worth pushing because it's just going to get steadily worse. So I'm not saying here, oh, I'm optimistic because I know that we're going to do it fast enough and uh, things will stop getting worse. I think the truth is things are going to continue to get worse until we figure it out. And so it's not like this is a, a career choice that we're all talking about that's going to be, if, you, if you're focused on the climate problem and transportation, that's just kind of, a, it's going to be decades and decades of bad. on this <laughs> yeah. So
0: you know, You've if, got your work cut yeah, out. We for all do. You, we all do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, look, I, I mean, there's, there's a part of it. I, I mean, okay. So I hear you on your optimism. I, I do... I think the fact that, as you say, the politics are changing, the technology is changing, and look, you, you, we kind of have to do it anyway, right? Yeah. And the, uh, there is a, there is a question here for me that you know transport is obviously a utility, right? Like yeah. it's, and 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 we have seen it actively fighting back against climate emissions changes. And, and um, if you look at how automakers have responded, or other yes, things. yeah. Is it? Do you think at this stage car- decarbonisation in the transport sector is an inevitable? Is inevitable? and then uh, there's a sort of a tangential question to that which is is there other ways that you think that this can be tackled asymmetrically
1: yeah i think it's super far from inevitable i mean i don't think it's inevitable at all i mean even if you look at the history in electric power where the the technologies now um are you know cost competitive depending where you are with some fossil fuel technologies even that doesn't make it inevitable right there's lots of political opposition from people who own the assets that we're talking about disappearing, whether you're a coal plant or a natural gas or whatever operator, pipeline operator, you know, you're not you're not gonna quietly acquiesce to the value of your asset going to zero. So I think you know, even <laughs> Oh if,
0: sure. It, I don't mind it being straight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, even in the
1: simplest the quote unquote simplest case, which I think is electric power, you know, even though the technology has progressed a lot, to me, it's very, very far from clear that that's even that's inevitable. And I think on transportation, we're further away from that. You know, we're talking a lot about the pieces that are quote unquote easiest, which are light duty passenger vehicles um, and getting those to be electric and ideally combining that with a host of actions around expanding transit and reducing demand, et cetera. Um, but, you know, automakers, as you're seeing in the US right now in the battle between California and the United States around who gets the right to set emission standards, you know, many of them are siding with a rollback of even, you know, much more modest. Increases in fuel efficiency than we're thinking about when we talk about getting rid of internal combustion engines altogether. So, even if the technology, even if you're a sort of optimist and believer that the technology is going to get so great in the near term that it's going to be cheaper for someone uh, to buy an electric car and power will be renewable and, you know, micro mobility will expand and e bikes will be fantastic, there's there's still E-VTOL going to be. e toll will be a thing. What's that?
0: EV toll will be a thing yeah, for well, those longer distances. I was going to come to that.
1: We can come back to that. Um, but I think, yep. you know, I think that world is still going to face a ton of opposition. And also the world is a big place. So, you know, it may well be inevitable in London, um, but there's also a lot of countries that are expanding right now, their transportation footprint and growing their infrastructure and the choices they're going to make. So yeah, to me, it's not inevitable until it's done. And it's, we haven't really even started. So um, yeah, on asymmetry, I mean, I, you know, one thing that you just mentioned e-vito, Uh I think there's asymmetries that can go the wrong direction also, right? I think, uh, in other words, new technologies that I think can work against what we're trying to do, and I think flying cars is a good example. Um, I know I'm, mm-hmm. I'm supposed to call them eVTOL, but uh, you know, flying cars. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons that I would be skeptical of it working at scale. But let's assume that it was able to do that. It's clear that if you can up the speed of travel from someone uh, who can move, you know, four times faster, or depending on how you're thinking about it. Uh, but if you're in San Francisco and you have flying vehicles, you can get across the bay probably a hell of a lot quicker. Uh, and so you know, it's a lot there 's a lot of history to showing that if you make travel way faster and cheaper, people travel more and so yes. you know the obvious the, the obvious, paradox. The, yeah. the, obvious yeah. pa- you know, the obvious impact there is on on something like a new technology like e v or potentially autonomous vehicles, maybe a little bit milder version of this you 're going to get a, a big increase in the amount of travel if it 's successful again, I have a lot of doubts of whether it could be successful, but assuming it is you 're going to dramatically increase the amount of energy that needs to be consumed there 's a paper that came out that argued that you know flying cars were more efficient than cars there's a lot of pretty dubious assumptions in there like every ev toll would have four people in it and the average car only has one which seems unfair but the big one to me is that they were comparing on a per mile traveled basis and what's really relevant especially for something like ev toll is that you're going to get a ton more travel and so that you know people will say yeah but it's electric i'm like yes but the reality is we have a challenge right now of decarbonizing the energy we currently consume. If we're talking about, in a lot of places in transportation, dramatically increasing that, that clearly makes the problem more difficult. And given the timelines we're working on, to me, that is super counterproductive. So, you know, if you have people on your podcast who are big believers in, in eVTOL, I'm happy to, to talk about it uh, in more depth. But certainly from a climate perspective, which isn't the only thing that matters in transportation, uh, I find it, you know, a little bit scary in the sense that new tech, there's places new technology is clearly going to help, and there's certainly places where I think it's going to make things a lot harder if and when it becomes real.
0: Yeah, I, 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 um, going back to Uber days, uh, I remember having a conversation with Jeff Holden, uh, who was the chief product officer at the time. And, um, and, and he was pointing out that they thought at the, time that it was going to be cheaper to hop into an EV toll and fly somewhere than it would be to fuel your car. Uh huh that just the marginal cost would be so low yeah that they they reckon they could get it so low on if if, if their vehicle was autonomous and blah blah yeah. Blah, blah, blah yeah and, and and i'm and sure it'd course. be great
1: i mean you know it's pretty fun to be flying above the city so i think i'm skeptical that that is true but then if i grant that that what he pointed out would become true then everything i was just saying becomes a real worry so i have kind of two two lines of argument one of which is like i'm not as i'm not convinced that it's Realistic or practical to actually achieve the dreams of people who are backing e v toll, which is not just uber obviously um, but then yes. granting that they are possible, I am not excited about what the consequences of that would be hmm. Hmm. <laughs> so i'm not a, I, hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself a an e v toll bull, especially in the midst of how much we're describing the challenge of decarbonizing the system that we already uh, have essentially
0: yeah. <laughs> Um, there was there was one part that you were mentioning uh, earlier, and I, I want to go back to that, and that was the... There's lots of parts to this. There's, there, you're, you've mentioned land use change, you've mentioned EVs, you've mentioned public transport, um, and it strikes me that it's a pretty clear... All of that and more is yeah. an approach. Um, and yet, you have alluded to it, and, and certainly we've talked about it in the past, that a lot of these conversations are happening in silos. Yeah. So. Land use change is oftentimes, you know, sometimes you get a little bit of transit-oriented development chat, Yeah. but for the most part, they seem to be relatively disconnected conversations. Yeah. Same with EVs, which sort of, you know, uh, the auto industry has managed to very successfully lobby and say it's the be-all and end-all and yeah. should just go to electric and every, everything would be fine. How do you unsilo that conversation?
1: <laughs> I mean, the only way that I've worked at it this year has been through the kind of exercise we talked about earlier, which is you know, stating the goal at the high level, which is to say, okay, you know, the state of Massachusetts or, you know, France or wherever is going to cut transport emissions by 80% in 20 years or whatever, you know, pick your pick your date, pick your cut. And then once you do that, you know, you have to start looking at the entire transport sector and seeing what's possible. And I think that's what the point of, in a really, really simple way, the spreadsheet exercise we've done here, but there are lots of other examples of just forcing people to come together and say, okay, what what could we do with cycling? So if we took Boston and we managed to get cycling rates that look like Amsterdam, uh, how much of the problem would that solve? Um, And if we got EV adoption that looks like Norway, which is currently the highest in the world, like how much of the problem might that solve? And if we managed to overcome a lot of NIMBY opposition to new development and we tripled the density of every new housing unit that was built in the Boston metro area, what might that look like over 20 years? So to me, you know, one of the things that I find that I've noticed is that those conver- that conversation doesn't really happen, right? It it happens in a bunch of different events. I go to a lot of shared mobility events. There are a lot of kind of uh, more like urban planning and design type events. Bike advocates have their own groups, all of which are doing good work. Uh, and it, it is overwhelming to think about having all those in the same room because each of those is so complicated. But I do think at some level it's necessary to say, hey, here's the high-level goal, and here's some numbers. Like, I do think ultimately numbers are hard because they can show you things you don't like but they can also help ground people in some of the reality. And I think we should be both more grounded in this conversation because I think a lot of times we have more adjectives than we have numbers, but also more ambitious. And I think you know, that doesn't mean it's going to magically unsilo the fact that these different modes are managed by totally different uh, organizations or institutions that don't talk to each other, etc. But I think there's a new impetus to say we have a climate objective for this country or this state or this city, and that might drive new conversations, if done in the right way, that could maybe bring people together. And I think that, you know, bringing people together requires compromise. So you might be a you know, cycling advocate or a affordable housing developer who really wants your solution to be the whole answer and you realize through that process that you're only 10% of the answer or 15% or whatever, which is maybe more modest than you would have liked before. Um, so that can be challenging, but I it's think that's... very
0: unsexy to not be the same.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think that's necessary. Uh, I don't know how you get people to want to do that, but I think it's, it has to happen. And it's happening in places like California right now, um, which are there in the midst of talking about how they get to zero by 2045 in transportation. That's an executive order they're working through. And there's a study right now to say, what are all the emissions in transportation, whether it's freight long distance, you know, tractors on farms, literally everything... And then how do we get to zero on all of those? And the UK has a similar study going on where they have a, they have a transport decarbonization plan nationally that's being put together. And, yeah, you know, they have a lot of workshops around that. I just think those things are necessary to bridge the climate transportation gap. And there's a bit of that happening, but not that much. And I think there should be more.
0: Yeah, obviously. And, and the, the, one, the one part in that conversation is when you... Uh, so you sent me through the... Uh, that spreadsheet yeah and, um, uh, for, for Boston. And the one thing that I went off obviously went and played around with was what does what happens with micromobility. And yeah. the part was <laughs> is that you were you, you did point out with that if we were to shift um, a fair amount of the transport. So say for example we got to Amsterdam levels of adoption yeah. in, in somewhere like Boston on e bikes and e scooters and yeah. you know don't, yeah, ignore for a second the winter in Boston and but, yeah. but if we were to say, you know I wish okay, we could. if you go to a more yeah <laughs> i think there's a lot of people who wish that you could yeah um you know hey look might be getting warmer anyway yeah, um right. but the but um but for those more temperate cities right that, yep. there was obviously a very substantial part of it and yet there's also something that i've found which is in advocacy work as i've, as I've been talking to groups like for example here we have a climate change commission and i've been in to talk to them because i said look i've got this research i've been doing etc yep. and they they sort of said well one the mode of cycling is so low that it doesn't matter mm-hmm. so they don't necessarily see that there's a potential big potential for mode shift and then the second is there's not enough research around this as a um, that, that there's there's not enough research and nor is there much in the way of political lobbying or power yeah. um, about who's in that room talking about these things because otherwise what you end up with right is that we end up with the, the, what we've ended up to date, which is all the car companies say, yep, well, don't worry, we're going to be shifting yep. electric vehicles and that's how these that's things it. happen. Yep. And they completely ignore all this new tech and the, and the massive uh, incoming uh, group of these new vehicles that are lightweight and electric that don't have an industry body because they're, they're very new yep. as, a sort of, as an industry. Um, how do you think we can counter for that?
1: <laughs> so I think, I mean, you know, what there's a really interesting parallel to that exact question happening in renewable power, which is obviously that you want big uptake of, solar and wind and other renewable energies. But what you have right now, primarily, is fossil fuel infrastructure that powers the electric grid. And exactly what you're describing is that over the last 20 years, there's been rules that are called renewable portfolio standards that have happened at the state level in a lot of US states where they've said, you know, the electric power mix has to be X percent renewable by a certain year. And what's happened is that has slowly built up renewable energy industries, wind industry, solar, uh, in a lot of places across the country. And as they have built up, they've gained a little more political power because obviously once you have a wind power plant that's you know, paying rural landowners in Kansas or Texas or California, you start to have more political influence and you can start to battle against uh, incumbent industries. Mm-hmm. And the hope is that has something called policy feedback where that starts to build on itself over time and you get more and more influence as you start to grow. But that's not always the case. And you've seen a lot of retrenchment happening in the last few years where people are actually successfully pushing back against growing those renewable portfolio standards and a growing role for wind and solar being, you know, those things being fought against by incumbent industries who have realized, I think one of the things that she talks about a lot is that some of these, these renewable portfolio standards were passed in without really people knowing what the consequence would be. And by people, I mean incumbent industries. And as the industry started to grow and they realized how much power they were accumulating, they really mobilized to slow them down. And you're seeing a lot of states either roll back their portfolio, renewal portfolio standards, or work against it. So even in places where that has started to happen, and you can imagine an equivalent in micro mobility or other industries where they start to grow, you get a little more power, you get consumers. I mean, Uber, for better or for worse, were really successful in the early days, certainly at mobilizing their user base to fight for regulations. You can imagine in you know electric mobility industries using that as well, but there's a lot of incumbents that are going to push back so I don't know if there's an easy answer, but I think some of these standards that have said we're going to have to get to ten percent small vehicle combo bike whatever it is as a share of our overall travel might force that industry to grow and by doing that you might get some political power over time um, but even that's not inevitable so I think you know you have to find some ways to build up From nothing, and you know, if you're a politician, you say you should fight for cycling, and there aren't a lot of cyclists, and they don't show up at at meetings. Then I can see why that's hard to make that push. So, how do we get off the ground? Right? How do we get off the ground, and how do you sustain that over time? Because as it starts to grow, in some ways, the first few percentage points maybe the easiest because the big guys might not want to fight you, but if they start to see you accumulating power, they are going to push back, and you're seeing that really significantly in uh, electric power, at least in the U.S. But I'm sure. you know, frankly, everywhere people have a lot invested in the status quo and they don't like to see change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a wider question, right? It's not just around transport and specifically, especially not just around micromobility. I do think that we haven't, um, one of the things that has been notable has been the complete lack of interest from auto OEMs or anybody in the, even the electrification of transport a road transport space. Um, uh, we've noticed, for example, with things like the conference, nobody, none of the, none of the Auto OEMs want to sponsor it. They don't really, you know, kind of Honda had a little bit to do with it. Um, sorry, that's not entirely true. Honda did sponsor it, but nobody else did. And we and we look at this and go, you know, it's very challenging for an auto company to compete with what effectively feels like additive vehicles to the to the transport system that they would be utilized in a different way, similar to like a house, a cell phone might be utilized versus a laptop. Um, you kind of use them for different things, but the, the the smart device is the one that you kind of end up using. And over time, it gets better and better and better until it becomes your primary transport device. Um, but the, 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 you know, this idea of, poli- what, what was it called? Policy capture or policy... Policy feedback. I mean, I love that as a, as a concept. And, and you kind of need that, right? You need... you, 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 you there, There's a framing uh, thing around it as well, which is they they garner the small... I mean, that's why the Segway never took off. It's because you never had enough people riding around on them. And, but but the same technology came back in the form of scooters. It just so happened that there were a lot more people who were interested in it. I do wonder a little bit about what the shared scooter scene will look like um, in two or three years um, and whether or not the tech will have substantially improved... Um, and, and we paired with, oh, hey, well, we now have better infrastructure because people are well, actually that, starting to change. up. I mean,
1: that's the slow part, right? I mean, the the piece is, to me that's, that's obvious if you want to get, you know, it's no surprise that when, when I was at Uber, when they were looking at places to launch with bikes, you know, the early part of Uber when we were growing the ride service was, well, just get, basically get cars on the road and people will use it, right? Get, get drivers to join up and the app is successful and people will take it. It doesn't really matter where you are. You can be in Dallas or Manhattan or anywhere it will work. And at some point, the early part, the same approach was taken on the micro mobility stuff. And it was like, well, let's drop 5,000 bikes or scooters in Dallas and Austin and uh, Portland and everywhere and see what happens. And very quickly, people realized that the demand pattern was a lot different and that the cities that were successful and people were using a ton of bikes were places that had a ton of cycling infrastructure already in place. So it's no surprise that one of the early studies for Uber that was really successful was in Davis, California, which is like by California and US standards, kind of a biking mecca. And that later on, a lot of the choice was to invest in European markets because those places have a huge number of people who already use cycling and other kinds of infrastructure. And so it's a lot easier and a lot safer to use shared bikes there too. And I think getting cities that don't have that to go from very little of it to something big, I think obviously new players can help push that along, but infrastructure changes are always going to be slower than like technology changes in some ways. Although I'll correct myself in some ways and say the COVID stuff has shown us that with a bit of paint and some political will, you can make streets a lot safer from micro mobility too. So there may be some hope that, that can change quicker than you know having to build, really build something rather than just kind of reallocate something that's already
0: built. That's fair. Hey, well, look, I'm, I'm aware we're really running up against time, so uh, I is there any, so, okay, one, I'm gonna do a shout out to your Twitter account because it's still very interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, I say that, you know, six, 70, I think 20, it's
1: more interesting now. I don't have to toe any corporate line now. So. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh,
1: and Very creatively at Andrew Salzberg. And if you oh. do that, I also, as you know, Oliver, just, just, I have to plug my own newsletter that I oh, watched yeah, please do, uh, please last please. week. So uh, it's also very creatively called Decarbonizing Transportation. I think this conversation we just had is really exactly what I'm trying to do with that newsletter. So if you're interested, I would love to have you there and, uh, and, and hope to use that as a place not just for me to talk, but to hear from other people and try and build a little community trying to figure this thing out.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm definitely part of that community. So um, come, come come, join <laughs> good us. Good to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. And um, Th- look thanks forward for to having me. you on at some point in the future where we can talk about it, hopefully with some, some better news and updates about, um, you know, great success stories that we've, we've found.
1: Definitely. There are a few out there. We can talk about them next time.
0: Yeah, sounds good. Cheers.
1: See ya.